Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Picture? I'm your host, Soul Lovemore. Join me as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today we're talking to Enia Luco, a former professional footballer who achieved 102 England caps and enjoyed a glittering club career with Chelsea and Juventus. She's considered one of the best to ever play the game. Eni has continued her success off the field as an ambassador for the United Nations Women, a solicitor, author and sporting director of Aston Villa Women. She has a new book out called They Don't Teach This, sharing her experiences and aiming to inspire readers to be the best possible versions of themselves. I was introduced to Eni by a mutual friend and admired everything she stands for. She's a fierce competitor and one of the most open and honest people I've ever met. I hope you enjoy our conversation and gain some valuable insights from an incredible woman, someone I highly regard. Welcome, Eni. Thank you so much for taking some time to sit down with me today. Firstly, congratulations on your book, They Don't Teach This, for being shortlisted by The Telegraph. My copy is ready and waiting on the bookshelf, and I genuinely can't wait to read it. A lot of my friends have actually bought it, you know, and it's like, read it and been like oh I didn't know that about you or so it really does mean a lot the recognition means a whole lot and um, particularly in that category I mean like you've got Michael Owen's book in there you've got ML Heskey like guys that I used to watch growing up you know so for, for, for me to be the only female as well in the category is like mind-blowing for me so we'll see to be honest like if I win I win but I'm already kind of really happy Either way, you're a game changer. So don't worry about that. You, you've won already. And I wanted to say, firstly, tell us a bit about the book and why you felt now was the time to obviously tell your story and to write the book. So the, the book is called They Don't Teach This. And um, the premise of it basically is that, you know, I've had a long, pretty up and down football career as well as life. And it's all about the experiences throughout my life and career um, that have taught me something that I can take out of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. And the idea that there's no manual to life. No one can really sit down and kind of teach you and say, when you're in this situation, do this, or when you're in that situation, do that. Or you can only kind of learn through going through the experience and going through the storm and staying in the storm and then taking something out of it on, on the other side of it. So that's that's what they don't teach this lessons in the game of life is the subtitle is about and it really packs in a lot of stuff beyond football so I didn't want to just write a book that was like oh in 2005 I banged in a nice goal I wanted to talk about like what does it mean to be a black female footballer playing for England who comes from Nigeria like that's that's a whole host of conversations so it's like identity it's race it's religion I talk a lot about my faith it's success failure um self-confidence self-esteem like it's all in there and um, I really needed to be in a very vulnerable place to to write it because I wanted it to be a conversation starter I wanted it to be something that people read and go like wow I feel like that it has nothing to do with football but I actually feel like that as well so I'm really proud in that sense because I, I really I think I wrote something that was very different to what the typical sports autobiography is, um, and it kind of sits outside the sports category. It can it could be a memoir in itself, you know. You really touched on a lot of areas and things that relate to 
a lot of people, me included, you know, and one of the first things I wanted to touch on is obviously you speak about identity, race, prejudice, which all go hand in hand. And the fact, obviously, that you were born in Lagos, but then spent your formative years growing up in Birmingham, you know, and dealing with that dual nationality, I really wanted to go there and just kind of, I think in your book, you called it hyphenated. Yeah, hyphenated identity. That's the one, hyphenated identity. And yeah, I'm just intrigued to hear your your take on it because that's something I also experienced. So here, hearing you talking about it is refreshing because it's nice. It's like, okay, I'm not the only one. I wasn't going crazy when I was having these thoughts. Yeah, well, hearing you say that back to me, is amazing because that was that's the whole intention is to be able to you know have people really signal the fact that it relates to them too you don't have to be a footballer for that to happen so hyphenated identity really was about and and embrace the hyphen which is the chapter was really about the idea that you know growing up i kind of tried to like dumb down my nigerianness to fit in and Playing for England obviously probably made it worse in the sense that I just wanted to be like considered English and like British to wear the shirt badge. So it kind of really brought into focus for me. And then you had the odd people saying, you know, oh, why didn't you choose Nigerians? So identity for me was always like in the focus. It was always a question. And when you get clapped up for playing for England, obviously that's the side that you want to, you know, you want to kind of relate to. So, so for a long time, my Nigerian identity was kind of dormant. It was like something that was like sleeping within me. And when I got to university, I realized, oh my God, there's so many more Nigerians like me who either grew up in Nigeria and, and came to school here or, um, you know, grew up here, but were Nigerian and other Africans too. And I really was able to embrace, you know, what it all meant, the sort of colorful life of, of African, you know, diaspora. And so embrace the hyphen really is that idea that I really embraced the other side of myself that I really kind of shut out and edit, edited for a long time. And um, I think once you do that as a person, whatever your hyphen is, whatever your balancing act is, you become better for it. No, for sure. And what would you say were the key challenges you, you battled with? I'll give you an example. In, in my case, I always thought growing up, I was always perceived as, oh, you talk white or you're trying to act like your why and and for me it used to be it was such a disturbing thing as you can imagine as a young kid because in my head I'm like I'm not trying to be anything I'm, this is just me this is how I want to this is how I want my speech I want to speak well number one I want to carry myself in a way because for me I saw it as if I make these adjustments as a as a young man by the time I get to the places I want to be I should be, you know, the finished article, quote unquote, to be able to to go and achieve what I want in life. So I just wonder how you how you kind of dealt with those types of challenges. Well, I talk about that in the book, actually. I talk about an experience in high school where you know, I went to a predominantly white high school, predominantly, um, you know, there was probably maybe less than 2% um, of people of colour in the school. And it's a pretty good school. Um and ironically, the people that bullied me were black, were black girls um, who were Caribbean and didn't understand how I could assimilate myself with boys, with like white girls who were equally my friends. Obviously, you know, I was always, I was quite clever in school. So I, I did well. I was prefect. I talk well. And I had the whole like, you're a coconut, you know, you're an African boo I had it all. 
And it used to really disturb me because I was like, I don't get, like, we're the same. I don't get why you're so angry about, you know, the fact that I want to speak properly. And so it seems to me as obviously the, the experience, I, it wasn't sort of unique to me, but it, it did get to me a lot because I then again thought my Africanness was something that was like shameful. Um, and it's amazing how it's flipped on its head now. Now in 2020, you know, African music, being African is like, you're down. <laughs> yeah. But in the 90s, being African was not down. You were considered fresh. You were considered, you know. So that's also another topic in terms of within the community, within the black community, colorism and, you know, the, the cultural divides that come between, you know, are you African, are you Caribbean? Are you African-American? That's another kind of different conversation. So um, I hope I addressed that in the book and, and, again, you know, started a conversation around it as well because, you know, that's another part of, you know, being black that people don't really talk about. But actually I think we need to get better at that, like continue to, to unite so that we can continue to excel. Um, if we have divisions within you know, within the black community along stupid things like, are you African or Caribbean? We're not gonna, we're not gonna get to where we wanna get to. One of my favorite quotes I've heard in the last year is intelligence does not attribute to color type thing. And it's exactly that. Just, just take people for who they are. Let's stop this. You're black, you're Ghanaian, Nigerian, as you said, because if, if everyone came together, there'd probably be less hate overall because I, I face the same challenge as you, where it's like your Caribbean friends give you grief or your African friends might say, oh, you're not really African. What part are you from? You don't even do this. Da, da, da. It's just... I think it's also that idea that, you know, black is supposed to be this. You know, I'm from Birmingham and I can easily talk to my, the kids that I grew up in the estate and, and talk to them as if I'm from there because that's where I'm from. But equally, go and sit in a corporate um, meeting and talk their language too. Like, I'm still black. But the idea that it's like, that it's like no, you have to be one and not the other is ridiculous to me. And I think we have to really unlearn that stuff because the quicker we do, the more we're just going to keep excelling in spaces that are not meant to be for black people. You know, I don't know how to unpack and unlearn that stuff, but I think having the conversation helps. I think we, we're too quick to box and, and be like, oh, they're part of the culture. And it's like, yeah, we're part of the culture, but you can be different within it too, you know? Yeah, there's no, as you said, there's no one size fits all. It's not it's not something you can just go it's this way or that way. No, for sure. I think, um, and I think that's where Africa's really come on, come on boards as well, like come on leaps and bounds. Africa to the world now is something that's very exciting. You know, whether it's Ghana doing so well with your return, no, I was in Ghana at New Year and it was like, I could have been in Atlanta. You know, there were so many people from around the world. You know, I met so many German people there. Like, and that's amazing. Like, you know, I think, I do think African could do better in terms of, you know, our tourism. Like, the countries that have figured it out are better off for it. The countries like Ghana, like Kenya, you know, with the safaris, like South Africa. There's no reason why Nigeria can't be another kind of country that, you know, Lagos is maybe the, the Dubai of the West Africa, you know, like make Africa something that is is absolutely exciting and beautiful to go to because 
ultimately, I think the perception is still around, oh, you know, it's dangerous to go to Africa. Well, it's also dangerous to go to South America, but people still go. Going back to, you mentioned Birmingham, obviously growing up there, Birmingham was always seen as like a multicultural success story, you know, being like super diverse with the with like a, a high percentage of Asian and black population. Well, I think from a young age, um, I didn't really think too much about my colour because football was kind of my way of assimilating and getting being accepted. So because I was so good at football when I was younger, there was no other, like, it was almost like, oh, she's one of us. Like, it, it, there wasn't an issue of, it was almost like that was the reason to accept me and then it wasn't questioned after that. It was only until I, I kind of got to teenage years when I started, as I said, I, you know, I, I was bullied by, you know, the two girls at school um, who were black, who, and that kind of threw me because the expectation was that you'd, you'd be bullied by someone who looks different to you. Um, but to be honest, Sol, I think the first time I really experienced discrimination, and it was probably quite subtle, was through the education system. So I remember speaking to... Um, a careers advisor and again I talk about this in the book and she just couldn't get her head around the fact that I had such high aspirations for myself and she kind of was like you know why don't you go into nursing and and other stuff and and there's nothing wrong with going into nursing but I wanted to be a lawyer that's not you know but obviously her view of um you know what black women should do professionally was nursing it wasn't anything that typically white people do you know so that's where I was a bit like, why is she so adamant to tell me to do something that's like not what I want to do, first of all, and is not like, you know, it, it, it's a box. It's a it's a restriction. Um, so though that's that was the first time I, I really felt kind of vulnerable in my own skin. Um, and I almost felt like the way I thought was a bit too big. It was that it was that kind of staying she should you stay in your lane know your place kind of feeling and I've had that a few times throughout my career particularly in football where you know as somebody who's always had a voice who you know I, I'm, I'm not just a footballer that knows about football like, I know about lots of different issues you know politics I, I, I like reading you know there's lots of stuff that I like so you know whenever you sometimes share your opinion it's kind of like stick to football, stay in your place. And I've always kind of had that. And again, I'd always think, well, if I was white and I said that, I'd be clapped up as being very intelligent. But because I'm black, I think it's like, oh, uh, she, she, she kind of, you know, she, she's getting above her station. So there's all sorts of subtle, you know, I, I think this is what people need to understand. It's something I really try to break down in my book that racism is not always, and it's, it's, less likely to be someone just calling you the n-word and and calling you something you know i can deal with that you can deal with that like it's not nice and it's not something that you 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 should ever accept but actually the real difficult stuff to to contain is the subtle stereotypes it's the subtle you shouldn't think like that the expectation you should do that job you, you do, do you know what i mean and that that I think people really need to be aware of because that's the stuff that really kind of um, chips away at you because it's not something you can say, how dare you, that's racist. But it is racist, but you can't really, you know. So um, those are the stuff I've always kind of picked up on and I've had to try and unlearn and unpack in my own head because it, it can take effect. 
particularly in the football world, you know, um, and, and I always try and, you know, speak into certain spaces in terms of racism in football. And it's amazing how the people who want to kind of be outraged about, you know, racism from fans towards players, um, the, the kind of visible stuff. When you start to talk to them about why there's no black coach in the Premier League or why there's no black executives on the board, they go quiet. It's the same conversation. And if anything, it's the, it's the best way to change it. I can't control some Bulgarian fans, but what you can control is your own environment and how many, how much representation you're having and the racism, the racist culture within your, your own environment. So again, people don't understand that racism has layers to, to it. And actually the, the, the layer underneath the skin is the one that's harder to deal with, but it's the most important. I think for me, it starts from the top, right? You have to open the conversation and go, okay, right. You said, number one, you don't really see black coaches. You don't really, and everyone looks at on the pitch as the players are getting abused, this, that, and the other. But actually, well, hey, if there maybe was one or two executives who were black ethnic minority, they could provide an interesting and valuable point of view for everyone else at the table to go, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. But because there's no one representing Again, it's a, it's just dialogue. Owners too. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of black billionaires out here. I mean, this is a very hypothetical situation, but if Kanye West wanted to come and own Arsenal tomorrow, he could. Man's a billionaire. Yeah. I'd probably go for Jay-Z over Kanye there. <laughs> you know, I was reading the other day, LeBron James has a stake in Liverpool. That's great. But if LeBron James really wants to have an influence, you know, he can say... Okay, next time we, we, we're hiring for a coach, we need to have at least three black candidates, however many it is. That doesn't mean they're going to get the job, but it means they have a better chance of getting the job. But I think where we really start to elevate in terms of dealing with some of this stuff that we're seeing, like police brutality, is where people who are unaffected are just as outraged. So where we're having conversations with people who, people who are not of colour saying, how do you feel about seeing the fact that black men are getting killed every week? Like, how do you, do you actually, if you don't, and if you don't care, why? Yeah, no, I'm with you completely. I think the conversation about race, I'm just glad now, even though with all this, all the terrible things that are going on, especially in America, I just think people, what did uh, Will Smith said? He said, uh, racism isn't getting work, worse, it's just getting filmed. And I, I love when I read that because that's exactly the point. The more now it's, it's nothing new. This stuff isn't groundbreaking. It's not like, oh my God, look what's happening today. This has been happening for decades and decades and decades. It's just now, technologically, we're more advanced and we live in a, in a pop culture society where everything is a world star moment and everything needs to be on Instagram, which is highlighting the issue at a much deeper level. Therefore, the people that normally would have got away with just letting those things slide, you know, because had it not been for that phone, I guarantee you the situation we're all looking at in the news today would have never hit the light of day. Men being killed by police in broad daylight and there's no there's no consequence for it. So I, I actually think the power is in our phones. You know, back to my point earlier about subtle racism. Had I have recorded the conversation between me and my careers advisor, I would be able to share with people how I felt in terms of this is what I mean by always been putting a lid on black black girls aspirations but I couldn't film I didn't film it, I didn't record it so it then just sounds like oh you're just 
you know, you're just kind of signaling that you're oppressed all the time or that you're racist, you know. And that's the other thing, you know, whenever black people sometimes call out things, it's always like, oh, wow, well, you're using the race card. And it's because often you can't prove it. You can't, you know, you can't um, signal it in a, in a way that people understand it. So the phones are our power. I mean, phones have taken a bashing. Technology's taken a lot of bashing. It's like people need to get off their phones. But it, it, it's, it's our evidence. It's all we have. And it's all we have to share what is going on to the world to hold people accountable. And as you said also earlier, you, you spoke about your faith and it's the continuous theme throughout the book. So I just wanted to touch on how important this is to you and how it has shaped who you are. Yeah, faith. My faith is is everything to me, really. Um, I mean, I've, you know, I started going to church when I was young. My mom has always been, you know, a strong Christian. But, you know, I'm very grateful to my mom because she never was really the one, the, the mom that was like, you, we must, you know, you must believe this and you must go to church. And it was, it was a lot more subtle than that. You know, I saw through her life how powerful her faith was to her. And it then was something that obviously I developed my own relationship with God and my own relationship with my faith through uh, my own journey. And, you know, my faith is something that's really helped me within sport, within football, in terms of, you know, being able to just have faith in what you can't see, have faith in something you can't control footballers were were a little bit weird in the sense that you know everything is controlled um everything is kind of managed you you become control freaks you become sort of ritual ritualistic in the way you um go about your business but ultimately you know you don't really know how it's all going to end up you can only do your best um particularly in a team sport so a lot of my a lot of my goals and achievements were pinned on things that actually I only had a certain amount of control over. But when I prayed about it, when I put faith that actually God's got me, God's got, you know, a destiny ahead already set for me, it, it gave me strength. It gave me confidence um, in, in the unknown and unseen. Um, and that's kind of how it plays out practically. Um but it's amazing how like the different places I've played, I've had to edit. I, I can I can either celebrate my faith a bit more or edit it a bit more. So playing in the UK, even mentioning the fact you're a Christian, people feel imposed upon. You know, it's like you almost feel like you don't want to preach to people because they're going to feel like you're preaching to them. In America, where I played, we used to pray. There's like it was me and like eight girls that used to pray every game. So it's part of the culture of the team. We'd pray. And you see it a lot like, you know, musicians, like they pray before they go out on stage and stuff. So I think um, faith is a lot more assimilated into U.S. culture. And then in Italy, when I played in Italy, obviously Catholicism is huge over there. And, you know, they're quite ritualistic in terms of their Catholicism. So when I said I was a Christian in Italy, it was like, oh, we get it. That's That makes sense. So... It's amazing how, like, I've had to kind of navigate my faith through football in so many different cultures. Um, But ultimately, it's been a huge, um, it's been a huge kind of boost for me in terms of my personal confidence and my personal journey. And also, um, being a woman in supposedly 
a man's world, quote unquote, which I'm glad now we're seeing more of a change regarding, you know, women's football. How did you, how did you first tackle that issue of, you know, football was always kind of like, oh, it's a boy sport, girls don't play football, but obviously this is something you excelled at and your, your career stats and everything you've achieved shows just how good you were. So, um, Obviously, growing up in the 90s, women's football wasn't on TV at all. If if anything, there was like one game FA Cup final at the end of the year and that was it. So I didn't really see anyone that did what I did. So I had a lot of issues with like just accepting the fact that like I played football and that was okay. And obviously in society, when you say you play football and you're a girl and you get like weird looks, it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, you don't respect what I do kind of thing. Um, so that was, that was tough. That was tough. Um, up until quite, you know, late teens really. Um, and then, you know, playing for England was obviously, you know, great. And that was kind of a bubble in a way. Um, you you didn't really understand what the, you know, the wider society thought. And then obviously within my family, my mom was very kind of supportive and obviously my dad was as well, but I think extended family were always a bit like, you know, where's this football thing going? You know, and, you know, in the Nigerian culture, girls playing football wasn't exactly something that people respected. You know, it's like if you or a lawyer or an accountant, it's like, ah, my daughter is very good. (laughs) I know the feeling, don't worry. What's that? What's football? So I, I almost felt like I had to kind of, edit uh, and almost lie at times you know I talk about in a book like I just sometimes I just didn't tell my grandma that I was playing football because it's just it was just an easier life for me because I didn't have that conversation about what girls what African girls should be doing and you know and I think that's actually something that still exists you know on my book tour I've been doing a lot of discussions with young girls about self-confidence about you know their own issues and and a lot of the issues that I come come across is Muslim girls who are very good footballers whose fathers are just like you're not doing it and I think a lot of the work that we have to do around shifting culture and letting girls be comfortable is with parents not with the girls the girls know that they're good enough the girls love what they do but it's about the parents and being able to say look like you are holding your child back because you think this is what a girl should do in this, your child could be the next Lionel Messi or, you know, the ver- female version, but because you're lost in your expectations of culture, you're not letting that child flourish, you know? So uh, I think I think a lot of that is, is cultural. And look, I, I do understand that, you know, as immigrants in this country, we do have to work harder sometimes and we do have to, make sure that we have we're in the best position to edu- educate ourselves and you know so i do think education is important and i'm not for one minute saying that you should you know sacrifice your education uh because of sport but you can do both you know i had to do both my my, my education wasn't even a compromise to be honest with you like i had to go to uni <laughs> so so to the extent it's non-negotiable, I had to figure out how I could play football and go to uni. And, and and it ended up serving me very well because now I'm in a situation where coming out of professional football, I was educated already. I had a plan B. I had a good foundation. And it's something that I'm trying to instill in my job now at Aston Villa, you know, trying to 
support players as much as I can in terms of the educational side of, of, of their life. Great that you've gone on to talk about your role at Aston Villa. One of obviously the huge things in, in the game, especially in the women's game, is the the gender inequality, you know, when it comes to salaries, number one, number two, obviously how the women's game is perceived versus the men's game. How do you think that's played out over the last, let's, let's look over like a decade. Do you think so far there's been any progress made in those areas and, and what you think the challenges are moving forward in that? I think there's been huge progress. I think there's been huge progress. I mean, from when I played, I used to pay to play, um, you know, as a teenager. Yeah, as a teenager at Birmingham, the early years, I used to pay, they called it subs, I used to pay £5 subs, pay for like drinks and stuff for the for the, for the the team and kit and stuff for the team. Like it was completely funded by like subs. Fast forward 15 years and, you know, I was able to re- like put my legal job on hold and, and sign a professional contract with Chelsea. And that's because of investment from clubs who were saying, actually, we really believe in doing the right thing and having girls as role models to the community. We really believe in doing the right thing and having elite athletes as part of our wider, you know, team. And, you know, I think the Olympics was a big part of that change. Um, We're not at the point of equality um, because I think a lot of this is financially driven and motivated. We're just not going to get to the point where, you know, it's a billion dollar industry like like the men's game here. I mean, I'd love it. I'd love it to. But we're just, you know, we're 50 years behind probably. But that's not to say that it can't be an industry that brings in millions in 10 years time. I mean, you're a businessman. If I said to you, if you put down a million on a property now and by 2030, it's going to be drawing investment of 10 million. You'd do it, right, tomorrow. Right. So women's football, I've gone from paying £10 subs to it now being a league that is attracting Barclays sponsorship of 10 million. So what does the next 10 years look like? But I think, that, and to your question, I think the issue is now is that investment is so kind of like, Oh, you know, we'll, we'll 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 do we'll do the right thing, and we will have a women's team. And it's kind of sometimes it's PR related, sometimes maybe it's tax related, but actually it should be something that's much more kind of. This is a steady, solid financial investment. Don't expect to, to for it to bring in billions like the men's game, but actually it's 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 an exponential opportunity. And where we're seeing now a lot more people conscious of women, conscious of equality, conscious about, you know, what their young girls are seeing on TV. It's a bigger opportunity for social good women's football, which is why I'm super excited as a sporting director, because it's like there's so many commercial opportunities. There's so many creative opportunities to engage the community, to to inspire, to aspire. but when you put it like that in kind of financial terms, people go, actually, yeah, do you know what? Like, it's come a long way. So I hope that I hope that investment just becomes more kind of, yeah, let's do it. You know, let's, let's, not, even, let's not even doubt it. Let's do it. And I think as well, having individuals like yourself taking up these um, sporting director roles and still being involved in the game after your career will fill, fill investors with confidence, right? Because most investors will look at an opportunity and go, 
okay, I see, I see the upside and I see the the, the the potential. But then one of the main things is when you look at if you're going to invest in a company, one of the one of the key decisions is the management team. It's great that you individuals like yourself you're involved because I think that's what's going to make people go, yeah, let's invest in the game. All the players that are retiring, players that have actually gone on and achieved so many great things in the game, are committed to this mission and they want to be a part of this revolution. I think it's it it will stand women's football in good stead for the long term. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I was very excited about the opportunity because I think it's it's a role that allows me to draw from my different experiences, um, both as a lawyer, as a player, as a national player, um, you know, as someone who has my own personal brand. So, you know, I've done deals with Adidas, I've done deal, you know, commercial deals. So it's understanding that, you know, what needs to sort of what I need to draw out of the game in order to move it forward within a, a great club like Aston Villa who have a great project. So um, I would love to see more more footballers go into... And this is actually something I've, I've, I've talked about in the men's game. I do think, you know, more of the male players can go into executive roles. I think it's usually coaching or media and that's it. But, you know, somebody like Peter Check at Chelsea, who's the sporting director, I believe, um, or has an executive role at least. Um, he's a clever guy. He has he's had a wealth of experience, and you know he's going to have a lot of say, and, and should have a lot of say in the, in the business decisions. So I think it's something that a lot of players can think about in terms of you know the business decisions of the club. Yeah, even um, speaking of uh, players that have gone on in the men's game to take executive roles, I think it's Edwin Van der Sar, the ex Man United. I think he's the CEO of Ajax, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. So it's, as you said, it's good to see that you know, and a lot of these guys, even Dennis Burkamp in his early days at Arsenal, I think they said if I'm if again if I'm not mistaken, I think Dennis Burkamp has a PhD. They said this guy was similar to what you did. He was he he studied alongside his playing career, and when he finished his career, this guy was honestly he's got academic accolades that could probably match up to his footballing accolades you're one in the same really I mean going back to your early football days I think um when you moved to Charlton Athletic in 2004 they said you were the um, a reporter said you were the Wayne Rooney of women's football <laughs> I love that that's brilliant yeah that's a compliment that I'm always going to remember because at the time Wayne Rooney was like wow like he was the best player in the world um and I think obviously because of my age as well like I made my England debut at 17 Mm-hmm. I think because of my age as well that, um, you know, I got, I got compared to Rooney, which I was like, but it's also pressure. Like at the time I was like, wow, like if they're calling me Rooney, I better start banging in the goals. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I better step this, better speed this progress up. <laughs> You've gone from zero to a hundred overnight. What what would you say is a um, a career highlight from your, from your playing days? What's like, I'm sure you have a, a moment or a game where you're like, this is, I, I felt like I set the world on fire on that in that moment. Well, every player will have a club that they played for that's very close to their heart. And, you know, they will always support. And Chelsea's that for me. Um, I spent six years there. Um, I, I was, the, I, I, I went to Chelsea when we were a very bad team. We weren't supported that well um, in terms of financially through the bigger club. And, um, we were just kind of playing at it, really. And then, and that was 2013. And then um, 
just gradually the recruitment just got better and better and better. And come 2015, um, we were we got to the FA Cup final and um, it was at Wembley and it was the first FA Cup final, women's FA Cup final at Wembley. There's like 40,000 people there. And um, we hadn't won anything up until this point. So we'd always got so close and we'd not won anything. And uh, I just remember feeling so desperate to win for, for, for everyone, for like all of my teammates, the management staff, the club, you know, for all the sort of ups and downs we've been through. I was so desperate to win. I've never been so desperate to win in my life. And um, yeah, so played out of my skin that day. Um, got the man of the match, well, woman of the match award, and um, we won. We won one nil, first trophy of the of the club's history at Wembley, and it's just something that I'll never forget. Like I remember, the I, I came off with cramp <laughs> in the 80th minute. I was so mentally and physically exhausted in that game. It's funny, you know. I was I was listening to Steven Gerrard talk not long ago, and he was asked about some of the games that people would expect for him to be, for, for, to be his kind of career highlights. And he actually, the games where I felt the most pressure, I, I hated, I didn't enjoy them. I enjoyed it after when we won, but when you're in it, there's just so much, there's so much pressure. You're thinking, all you can think about is, I just want to win and I want this to be over. And obviously you're playing and you're doing your thing, but in terms of your head up here, it's just pressure. So I didn't really enjoy the game that much. I mean, I played my heart out, but I didn't enjoy it. And so 85th minute, I come off with cramp, stressed out my head, sat on the bench. It was the longest five minutes of my life to 90 minutes. And I remember, like, they announced me as man of the match. I think it must be 88th minute. And I just zoned out. I, I didn't even, people were, like, clapping me and stuff. And I was like, I don't care about that. Like, I'm not here for that. I just want to win this thing. And it was 1-0. And when the final whistle blew, so I just broke down. I ran onto the pitch, broke down into tears um, because it was just a release of, like, years of just working and working and working and giving up my job and working and working and having people say you're a failure. And um, so that is 100% my career highlight. Um and interesting enough, the year before, we could have won the league and we lost the league on the last day. And I, one of the big one of the big topics in my book is about failure and how failure propels you to success. And I genuinely think we wouldn't have won that FA Cup final at Wembley that day if we hadn't failed so badly the year before. So I always say to people, like, use those failures, man. Like, use them. I'm always scared if I'm winning to, if, if I'm winning too, too much. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Same. Don't, get Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm a winner. I want to win all the time. And you want, you want it to be, you know. But you always have to have the mindset that this can, you know, I'm not, I'm not, hum I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not too good to fail, if that makes sense. When you do fail, it's like okay, cool. Uh, okay, I messed up there. We'll go. We'll, we can pivot and go another way. Um, I think people live in this mindset where I'm just going to win, 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 and then when failure comes, it's like, oh my god, what was that?
Yeah, and as you said, with, with the winning, when it's constant, I do agree with you, I'm the same, that when you have a run and you go, you know what, everything's good, everything's going well, but you always have that thing in the back of your mind that says, listen, don't get too comfortable because if the tables turn and you're not mentally in the right frame of mind, you know, it could derail everything. So I, I, I genuinely believe that's the best way to live is you've got to take, you know, the good with the bad, you know, study the successes and the failures because I think within... And as you said, there's more lessons and failures than there are in success. So, but yeah, and also the importance, the racism, football, the dialogue, right, around discrimination, bullying, um, and everything that's been going on. Obviously, the as you mentioned, Bulgaria earlier, the chanting with the fans, and there's been so many issues. What are your what are your views on the best way? to tackle these things, right? Players wanting to walk off the pitch, players being abused, you know, things being thrown. In your From your playing time and now, obviously, you can, you've almost got that luxury of hindsight. How, how do you kind of see the best way of tackling that and moving forward? I, I think, um, first of all, I, I don't think it's down to the players to decide how to respond to abuse. Players are there to to give their best on the field and, you know, to to play football. I think the idea that, you know, players and coaches have to come up with a strategy of how to deal with racism is ridiculous. It's for the it's for the decision makers in the game who set the rules, who set the the integrity of the game to make sure that, you know, those things are more controlled. And I think it's something that quite honestly, the authorities just don't care enough about because if they did, we wouldn't be sitting there trying to figure out what players should do when it happens. When you look at areas like corruption, money laundering, betting, I mean, if you are a footballer in football and you have family members who bet, you get a bigger fine than if you are racist on the field. You could potentially get a bigger fine or a bigger suspension than if you are racist on the field. So when the game wants to care, they'll care. So when it comes to corruption, when it comes to uh, um, uh, anti-doping, we know we know where it's at. We know what the rules are. We know what the fines are. You have courts. But when it comes to racism, no one knows what to do. I don't, I don't buy it personally. And I think the way we deal with it is to continue lobbying and talking to the likes of UEFA and saying, come on, guys, like, figure out the parameters of how to deal with this thing because honestly it's not that difficult now if you want to get serious about it you have to talk about okay do, 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 do stadiums get closed or do clubs get deducted points if they can't control their fans all of that stuff is when you start to take it seriously but obviously no one really wants to have that conversation because it's kind of you know, it's territory that is quite dangerous, particularly in the bigger leagues. If you're asking me how the best way to create a deterrent, that is, that's it. That's it. It's you have to create very strong deterrents. Unless you do, you're just going to keep having the conversation about it and thinking it's it's happening in other countries when actually it's happening right on underneath your nose in your own league. You know. Yeah, and follow, following on um, to that as well is racism in the press. Obviously, black players are perceived differently to way to the way white players are perceived in the press you know there was a huge thing around um I know Raheem Sterling and another player when he was a man city when 
um, at Man City, sorry, you know, and it was about the houses and all that sort of stuff. How how did you kind of navigate that during your career? And I mean, even now you still have to face it because you're, I guess you're always going to be in the, in the public eye. Well, I think Raheem Sterling, first of all, really shone a light on something that had been going on for years, which was, you know, the subtle racism in terms of the way media perpetuate stereotypes of black players. Um, he really shone a light on it. And actually, I think the media took a step back and went, whoa, actually, he's right. Like, we need to be more conscious of this. The ones, I mean, the the, 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 the ragdoll, you know, papers like Daily Mail, for example, who are, I'm not a fan of at all, um, they'll do what they do. But but generally, in terms of, you know, what how how journalists write about black players, I think everybody had a rain check for a second and said, actually, he's right. And it changed. It completely changed, first of all, the perception of Raheem Sterling, but I think it really made, it, it brought it to the consciousness of a lot of journalists how they're writing about black players. Something as simple as saying, Lukaku's a beast. You know, Lukaku is a beast in terms of that. that's a compliment, but he's also quite a skillful player. He's also, Right. No one ever says Lukaku's such a clever player. You know, maybe Lukaku's a bad example, but you know what I mean. So our words are really important. Um, and I've been bicked into that, you know, during my FA case, when, you know, the whole smear campaign was very much around trying to create me as some angry black woman that that terrorized the team and bullied the team. And it was like <laughs> I mean, it's just predictable at this point. I, I knew it was coming because that was all they had in terms of trying to, to to smear who I was. And it was really an old used, it was like coming to a fight and I know what punches you're going to punch, you know? So um, that was sad because it was like, well, you know, I, I knew that was going to be the narrative. Um, and a lot of people... A lot of people believe that narrative because it's just such an old and fast stereotype. And that's the part that got to me because I was like, people genuinely believe that I got kicked out of the team because I was a terror and I was horrible to everyone. And they don't want to hear that I was one of the legal representatives of the team for like three years and I helped to negotiate the contracts. The media are savvy. The media are pretty savage. They know what they're doing. It's just, it's crazy. Even that information you just revealed there about you helping with the contracts, it's exactly that. Unless you come out and you say it, they would never, they would never look at, oh, what did any actually bring to the England dressing room? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people you played with who would come out and on, and say, do you know what? Hand on heart. I don't want, I, they may not want to specifically comment on the said incident, but they'll come out and say, you know what? I actually enjoyed my time with Annie. She was this, she was that. She had so many great qualities. But unfortunately, as you said, they pick apart and they just go, right, where's the negative? How can we really sensationalize this and blow it out of proportion so that even someone who would have used rationale and actually thought, let me, let me look at this a different way and get to know any, they'll just go, nope, the papers have written it, it must be true, she's crazy, she's angry, forget it. I mean, look, I, I'm not I'm not perfect, you know, I've made mistakes like everybody else, but, you know, if we want if we wanted to do a, do a, a list of all the wrong, rights and wrongs of players in the England team, um, it would get messy, you know, but, you know, they're not black, 
<laughs> so yeah, first they, and foremost, yeah, they, exactly. They get the benefit of the doubt. So, you know, during that time when I was seeing all of that narrative being perpetuated, I was just looking, thinking, well, you're going to have to prove that because I'm going to expose the fact that that that's what I knew you were going to do. And I think that's when people backed off because it was like, mm, actually, if we try and go down the line of proving that any was X, Y, Z, which is in line with this stereotype, then she's going to have some stuff on us that I'm going to say, well, yeah, well, no one's perfect up out here. So it's, it, it, and then this is where I think platforms like Twitter are really important. I mean, I can't stand Twitter. I think Twitter is a very toxic place. But I think the benefit of Twitter is that it's given players a voice to call out stuff. It's given players the opportunity to say, no, hold on, that's not true. And instantly you put something right. Whereas before, the newspaper writes it and people take it as fact, take it as truth, and they get away with it. And that becomes the truth. Yeah, and people, and I, I genuinely believe, I was saying this to someone in conversation recently, like people are lazy, right? You, they A headline gets put out, it's an article. Instead of actually looking at it, looking at for facts, like real, this is black and white, they just take the headline and they run with it. And, it, and that's that. Where Whereas actually the right thing to do would be first and foremost, let me look into this more before making a judgment on someone, but no one takes the time. Everyone just reads a headline and they've made their assumption up. Sometimes it's black and white. If you like all the stuff that's going on in America, if it's a video and you can see it and it's there, fair enough. But even in your case, I think a lot of people didn't take the right approach. I think a lot of people should actually gone, okay, as well as what the FA and everyone else is saying, let's hear any out for a sec. Let's see what her story is. Let's actually reach out to her and see what she has to say about the matter. But it was just, no, this is how it is. We've made this decision. And for me, I personally, not just because I'm I'm your friend and I know you, I thought it was an unfair approach because you you weren't heard. It was just we've we've looked at it this way and you were portrayed in a light that made you to seem just from the short time the time I've known you already, there's so many great things I can take away and think, but you know what? Reading, uh, reading what I saw in the press, I, I can't see it. I've spent time with any. Of course, we all have our flaws. Um, we all have things things we do. That's life. There's no human being walking this earth surface who's perfect. But there's got to be a point where I think we get to a place where the media are also held accountable for being for being fair and just. If they are going to write something bad about someone, at least make sure that you acknowledge. You know, you've done your research. Well, there's all, there's all sorts of legal protections for the media in terms of, you know, the, 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 this idea of free speech um, is a little bit, you know, I believe in it, but I think it's quite dangerous because it means people can play with the truth um, and present it in a certain way. Now, if I say to you, um, I, you know, I went down a legal route and, um, you know, was more than prepared to go to court, and then ended up settling out of court versus she settled out of court and took money to be quiet. The facts are the same. The facts are the same. But they're presented in a whole different way. And your perception of me, depending on what truth you take, is completely different. So I spent the, the longest time, and this is why my book was so important, because it was my platform, it was my voice, it was my creative direction and it was my opportunity to say, no, this is what happened. Forget everything else. 
this is the unreserved truth of what happened. Um, without editorial, without, you know, headlines. Um, so this is why I think our own platforms, like what you're doing now with your platform, like this is a great opportunity for us to create our own platforms because we have our, our own voice unedited. Um, and and that's where I think, you know, I really spent a lot of my time speaking to papers that I trusted, putting out my own version of the truth. And eventually that's what, that's what kind of wins. And for people who don't want to believe that. Yeah. No, you you, as anyway. I said, as they say, if you, if you want to make everyone happy, sell ice cream, that's the only way, <laughs> that's the only way you're going to yeah. keep everyone on the. <laughs> I, I, was I was saying to someone the other day, and you know, we're living in a world also where people literally choose to be offended. Like I can be, I can say the sky is blue and someone gets offended because they think it's light blue. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, well, I wasn't really talking about it being light blue. I was talking about it being blue. But you choose to be offended because that's just how you want to feel. So a lot of the things that, you know, you say now, people just, you know, particularly when it's when it comes to politics, it's like people just choose to label and and, and hate you because you have a different view to them. And maybe maybe it's because I've been in sport my whole life and Literally, like, your biggest rivals in football end up being the people you respect the most, right? So that means you're opposed to them, but you respect them. All of my training in, in as a lawyer was about communication with the opposition, communication with the other side. What's the other side going to think? How do you respect the other side? So when it comes to politics, particularly in this country, I'm a bit like, why can't people just respect a difference of opinion and just and just be okay with it? If you vote Labour, that's cool. You have your reasons for doing that. If I vote Tory, I have my reasons for doing it. That doesn't make me a right-wing, racist, sellout. It's just, it's, it's crazy to me. It's crazy to me. It's, it's nuts to me. I, and I really think people need to, like, take a step back from it and go, actually, like, some a difference of opinion is not offensive. Offensive is 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 someone saying something racist or something sexist or something homophobic. A difference of opinion is not something you should be offended by. And people are just here going crazy over. I had I had someone write to me the other day, and she said, "Oh, you know, um, I really enjoyed. Uh, I, I think we did a, sh a shoot, and she said I really enjoyed." doing a shoot with you and you were so nice and it was so great to work with you but I've been really surprised at some of your tweets political tweets and you know I'm just quite disappointed and I was like okay so you think I've changed who I was when you actually met me in the flesh because of my political view but I'm the same person <laughs> but in her head in her head, she's like, you don't agree with me. I don't agree with you. So you, we have to be opposed. And, and you, you're less of a person to me. And it, honestly, it, it leaves me speechless because I just think it's really stupid. And even within the black community, you know, this idea that all black people have to think the same way and vote the same way. I mean, it goes, goes back to what we were saying earlier. And it's like, no. You know, I was saying to someone the other day, like, during the FA case, when it came to the point of, actually holding them to account publicly in terms of 
what happened. I sat in front of a, a, of a committee of MPs. Most, well, the, the chair was a conservative MP. And I had some amazing conversations with him and he really was keen to expose what was going on for change. Now, is that, uh, is that someone who's racist? So when I vote for the Conservative Party, I'm voting with that experience in mind. I mean, there was Labour MPs on the committee too. So, but, but yet someone will sit there and go, you voted Tory, so you're, you're a racist apologist. And it's like, well, no, actually, I, if anything, I'm voting for them because they helped me with my racist case, you know? So you just never know. There's a million reasons why somebody thinks the same certain way or has a certain view or certain perspective. And it's just about respecting it, man. Like, stop labeling people out here. Like, it's so, because it just creates division and hatred and, and bullying. And Going back to the, the mention of Twitter, you know, recently about the um, tweets regarding the furlough scheme and the, you know, around COVID, you know, and really it supports the whole cancel culture thing. You know, it's, you can't, you can't put your, you can't put your views out there because it's like, no, 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 you, any you you played football now you're the director of Aston Villa we don't really want to hear what you have to say it's it's hard to be in those shoes so I really want to hear it from you of how you even deal with that yeah no I def you've definitely captured how I do feel at this moment in time um and look you know I'm in a privileged position you know I have a great job um I'm a person that people listen to I have a platform so I'm not out here saying I should say whatever I want, think and feel. That's that's stupid. I do have to be responsible. But where, where I'm not saying anything offensive and I'm actually just giving a perspective and a view on something that everybody else is giving a perspective and a view on, that's where I feel a little bit like, why, you know, why can't I just give my personal view without being being attacked? Now, in relation to the furlough thing, I was literally sat on my sofa one evening and it was the day that furlough was extended until October. Now, I have publicly, I was publicly actually very praising and complimentary of the furlough system because I thought, wow, you you know, you have an economic recovery package really to help people feel comfortable just staying at home and not spreading the virus. So I was very publicly kind of, but at the same breath, I didn't, I felt that, it being extended to October was only going to make it harder for people to go back to work. It's only going to make it uh, more expensive for us further down the line in terms of taxes and, and all these things. So it was really an economic view. Um, but, but I was responding to a tweet of somebody who had basically bragged of the fact that he was earning more through the furlough system that he actually usually earns. Wow. <laughs> Basically being like, oh, like my, my whole kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like my whole cheating system can is basically being extended for four months. And that kind of annoyed me because I was like, hold on, like this is this is this is basically someone cheating during a coronavirus crisis when people are dying. So I tweet out in annoyance, if anything, but it was in response to one person. It wasn't about the whole nation, you know. Twitter's a bit like Chinese whispers. If one person feels offended, then they go, they they post something and it, it's, oh my God, how can you talk about all people on furlough? 
oh my God, how can you talk about all Brits? Then it becomes, she's saying everybody's lazy. They, then it just spirals out of control. And what what what, what was meant to be really just a, a tweet about someone, you know, bragging on Twitter about cheating became any Luca thinks all Britons on furlough are, are lazy and, you know, how, how dare she, she's privileged and, you know, and it just spirals out of control. And, and that's why I was just like, oh, this is not worth it for me because I, I wasn't sitting here trying to offend people. Um, but I think it, it brought into focus for me how careful I have to be even with my own opinion. And that's, that's really sad because I am somebody I think that, you know, people want to hear from in certain certain aspects. But also I have to get to a point where I'm like, is it worth it for me? Because when you sit there and people are just sending you barrages of abuse, it, 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 it's it's a transfer of really bad energy. You know, I didn't sleep for three days. I, I felt really down. Then my family, you know, people were saying things about my family. Um, it's just not worth it. So is your opinion worth it for all that? So um, I think I think my message really is just that, you know, just try and be more respectful of someone's difference of opinion and, and, and try not to think less of them because they don't they think differently to you. You know, I saw I saw a quote the other day and it said, um, no great harmony has the same notes. You know, if you, you listen to an orchestra and everybody's playing different notes, but it, it sounds great. So, uh, you know, so it's tricky for me. I have to figure out how to balance out, you know, my own personal view versus, you know, what people expect me to say versus, you know, my my sort of professional representation. But I'll figure it out. I think I, I think it's also healthy sometimes to just take breaks from social media full stop and, you know, um, not feel like you have to share with the world everything that you, you, you think or feel. Yeah, and you know what? I think, uh, firstly, I agree with you when you touch on the point of, we, we. to be fair, we all have a responsibility on social media, whether you're in the public eye or not, of the type of information you put out there, right? Because it, it this, as you said, people view things from their perspective. It, some may get offended, some might not. But at the same time, I feel what ha- what's happened to you regarding that furlough tweet where you've um, responded to the guy is, now what will happen is it's going to discourage people from engaging in dialogue and conversation. I think um, I think there's a few famous people that have done that recently. So I've now gone private. So after that whole furlough thing, I was like, no, nah, I'm done. Like, I've gone private. So anyone that follows me now follows me um, and wants to follow me. And if you're still sending me abuse and you follow me, then you really are a freak, you know? Um but like I was seeing um, Chrissy Teigen, who's married to John Legend, she has I think 18 million followers. She's gone private because there's like people that still follow her who still send her abuse, and it's like you're literally following me to send me abuse. So she's gone private. I think Khloe Kardashian recently, um, you know, did a whole tweet thread about like just the abuse that she gets, how people are talking about her ovaries. You know, we're human beings. Um, and the minute you have a blue tick and, and a certain level of following, people think they have a right. You know, I went private and honestly, like, I think I have over 300 requests for people to follow me. I can guarantee you 50% of those are people that just want to follow me to abuse me or say, you know. So that's the sick thing about the world we live in now and, and, and social media and, and 
And unfortunately, you're right. You know, the, the, the voices that actually have influence end up coming off the platform because the purpose of it is gone. And this is why I think Twitter is, is almost irresponsible for creating, allowing a spread space to foster that harbors these kind of individuals, that harbors these people in society who just literally download their hate and sit there waiting to download their hate. Um, so it's a fine balance. It's a fine balance, you know. I don't know. I I think my protection is the block button, going private, blocking anyone who 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 I feel is trying to be offensive, and that and that's it. That's my protection. I'm not going to come off the platform. I'm I'm going to take breaks from it because I think that's healthy. But I'm not going to come off the platform. But if you if you can't be mature enough to just respect someone else's opinion, and you want to come with racism and homophobia and sexism you're getting blocked straight away that's my bestie yeah no it's the, it's the best way to handle it and also any um in your uh time at juventus you were quoted as saying Turin was decades behind what did you mean by that yeah so so in some aspect i think first of all i have to say that you know again like the the press always just want to focus on the negative that's a whole column, you know, that I spoke about. And, and that column in particular spoke very positively about my experience. But obviously, you know, there's negative experiences as well. Um, and I felt that in the negative experiences, I did feel like I was in somewhere that was 10 years behind in terms of, you know, just how to deal with people from other countries, people, different races. Um you know, there was times when I got to the airport, even after, you know, I would fly into Turin Airport probably every week. You know, I would fly home quite a lot. It's only an flight. So the bodyguards knew who I was from the first time they checked me, which was absolutely fine. I'm not sitting out here saying I shouldn't be checked like everybody else. But from the first time you checked me and I don't have any baggage and you know I play for Juventus, why are you checking me for drugs with your dogs every single time I come through the airport? You're just trying to piss me off. You know, so those are the things that I thought, okay, like, would this happen at Heathrow Airport? Probably not. Would this happen even in somewhere like Berlin or do you know what I mean? And it just it just felt quite old and dated and quite behind in terms of the mentality towards um, black women and, and, and living in the city. One thing that really made me sad was a lot of black women were prostitutes. There's a lot of prostitution in the city and it made me really sad because for me living in London, I could quite easily see a black woman in the city who has a great job. You know, there's different types of people, whereas I only saw one type of black woman in Turin and which, which is what made it difficult for me because when I go into a nice store and try and buy a purse, people think I'm a prostitute. So... Those are the those that but, but look, these things happened. I lived there for two years, I lived there for 18 months, maybe three or four times. But when you talk about it, it's like that was her experience. <laughs> that was an 18 month experience. No, that's just the bad experiences I had. But equally, I traveled around the country, I loved the food, I learned the language, I had an amazing, you know, time. I was very successful on the pitch, I won trophies. You know, but it goes back to that point about balanced journalism. Like they're not trying to report the nice stuff. 
Yeah, it's always just trying to stoke the fire. But I'm glad that you've cleared that up. And also, um, obviously, as we come to the end, I wanted to talk about, you know, now your new role as sporting director of Aston Villa, which is, again, an amazing thing, as I said before, that you're still involved in the game. So how did that how did that come about? What does what does your role entail? What's next for any? Let's try and just maybe put that in, put it all in one if you can. <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, so in terms of the job, um, it's I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, it's very kind of multidisciplinary. So, there's, you know, there's contracts, there's budgeting, there's, you know, working on the football side, recruitment. Um, and it's a great team. It's a great team of people who are very dedicated to what they do. Um, obviously, the team have been successful this year as well in terms of, you know, finishing at the top of the league unbeaten. So we've got great players. It's, a, it's my home city as well. So I'm able to kind of understand from a different perspective what, you know, a team in Birmingham should look like and, and how to engage with fans. Um, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to just keep digging my teeth into that. Um, you know, obviously I'm a young sporting director, so I'll make, I'll make some mistakes as well. But, you know, I think the ownership group have given me um, real responsibility and leadership opportunity to grow in, within myself, but grow within the club as well. Um, so, so that's a big part of my, I mean, as the, the job was one of the reasons I retired. So 2020 for me was establishing myself at Aston Villa. That's a, a huge part of the year, even with coronavirus. Um, and I've been lucky that I've been able to continue working. Um, and I think off the pitch for me, it's really just kind of continuing with my own personal projects. Um, so, you know, I'm doing a lot of these podcasts and I'm doing a lot of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to support other people's platforms as well. Because I think that's really important, particularly in the black community. So obviously I'm doing yours now. Yesterday I did Mario Toji. The other day I did live with Don E, who's a musician. Um, and so hopefully further down the line, um, I can start my own platform and, you know, pay it forward for someone else to have their own voice. Because I think these platforms are unedited you know, people really get to know you. If they, you know, and, and I think podcasts, um, they're long, but people really get to know you. And so it, you're allowed to kind of change maybe any preconceived ideas that people may have had. People go, oh, she's she's different. Well, he's different. So I, I really like these platforms and I want to create my own. So really quickly, you know, um, so Embrace the Hyphen, what we were talking about earlier, the, the, the chapter in the book really inspired me to start a brand called Hyphenated People. And, and the brand will basically be a celebration of people from different who have hyphenated identities. So whether that's Black British, whether you're, you're mixed race, whether you're white and you, you have different parents from different countries, but also hyphenated careers. You know, a lot of us are doing multiple things in multiple lanes. You know, and, and just just being able to celebrate the multidisciplinary aspects of who we are. Um, and I want that to be a travel brand. I want that to be something that's a, a platform as well. Have you trademarked it, by the way, before this airs? I'm just saying, because I'm listening to all this thing, and this is gold. Can't be given that. Anyone listening to don't get ideas. It's already trademarked. It's already. <laughs> you can sue, you can sue them yourself. You're like I don't. Even, I am the lawyer. Forget. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's coming. That's coming. But obviously, I mean, these things take time. 
you know, we're in a we're in a sort of um, recession right now. So whether it's the right time to launch a brand or not, I probably not. But um, you know, the, even doing this with you has given me ideas of how to set it up, how to how to host other people, you know, and, and other people's conversations. So it's exciting, man. And I think generally for 2020, I mean, half the year's gone, half and in our house. And I think generally what I would say is that people just need to let go of the idea of I need to know what's going to happen in the next two months. Like, let it go. You don't live in the now. Just try live in the now. Just try to do that. You know, because I think that really stresses people out. Like, oh my god, it's going to be Christmas tomorrow, and it's like, yeah, maybe. That's the way. That's the way God wanted it. Try maybe take something out of this. Why is this happening? You know, what can I learn from this situation? What can I be grateful? Like, we've really been reduced to nothing. And even in nothing, you can still be grateful. I remember like at the height of the peak when like thousands of thousands of people were dying every day. And I woke up one day and I had a really sore throat and I was like, fuck, I think I've got this thing. I think I've got coronavirus. Because I'll be honest, beginning of March, I went to a concert. I was at the pub. I didn't really take it as seriously as I should. And so... I'm turning on the news every day and there's like thousands of people dying every day and I feel like ill. I wake up one morning, I feel ill. And instinctively, the first thing I wanted to do was go for a run because I thought, okay, if I go for a run and expand my lungs, I might feel better. Went for a run, obviously I was fine. But literally the next day, I remember waking up and thinking, I'm just happy I don't have a sore throat and I'm breathing right now. And it was such a, it was such a like, humbling feeling but it was something that I was like I should feel like that every day like forget ambition and I want to do this and I want to launch a brand and I want to like just be grateful for like the smallest things and I know like it sounds very Instagrammy and very like you know the stuff that we like on Instagram but it's true like this period has very much I think made people go do you know what? I really love my family or do you know what? I really miss my girl like the little things that we probably just take for granted all the time yeah no 100 percent. and i've been saying i said that one of my friends actually messaged me today um he's trying to surprise a girl he's been dating for the last five months and he was asking me obviously for some ideas and what to do and i said to him look this is the time where you can really show people you care about you know without the luxuries and that's where and i said to him think about how much more that's going to mean when she knows you haven't got any options. Normally, you've got the world's your oyster. You can check into a hotel. You can do a spa. You can go nuts. There's so much you can do, you know. But now we're reduced to this. We're stuck at home. Now you actually have to think and you actually have to make an effort. And I said to him, this is where you win. And if you care about this said girl as much as you say you do, then this is your chance to actually say, look, with no real resource available, nothing going on, you know, being able to put something together will, will mean the world to her because she'll think, wow, if you can do that during a pandemic, you know, God knows what this guy can do when the world resumes back to normal. And he laughed and I said, trust me, you'll thank me for this statement in, in, in 12 months. You'll be like, do you know what, Sol? <laughs> That's really good advice, actually. I'll report back on how that how that progresses. Hopefully I'm right. If I'm wrong, it'll be a shambles. But um, the closing question we like to ask all our guests, 
as you know, the title of the podcast is Can I Get a Picture? So who is the one person that inspires you that you'd love to have your picture taken with and why? Oh, my gosh. Just one. I mean, you can give me you can give me a couple, but who's like number one? Well, I'm watching I'm watching um, Becoming right now, Michelle Obama and you know, what she's what, you know, the, the difference between her life when she was in the in the office in the White House and her, diff- her life outside the White House and that sheer release of, of, of not feeling like she has to have every step right all the time. And I just, my, my respect, I mean, I loved her anyway, but my respect for her has just gone through the roof because I can kind of appreciate elements of that, obviously at different level, but I can appreciate this idea as a black woman, as an intelligent black woman, that you kind of have to always, you know, always be perfect all the time. and. You don't really have room for error. And so I think at this moment in time, if I could take a snap, it it would be with her. And I'd really, I'd really appreciate, I really appreciate her presence. Thanks again to Eni for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod? And we'll be back again next week with another episode. 